Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Lynn Serafin, the author of a very timely new book, The Seven Graces of Marketing, How to Heal Humanity and the Planet by Changing the Way We Sell. Lynn Serafin is a certified and award-winning coach and teacher, a marketer, a social media expert, radio host, speaker, and best-selling author. Her eclectic approach to marketing incorporates her vast professional experience in the music industry and the educational sector, along with more than two decades of study and practice of the spirituality of India. In her work as a promotional manager, she has produced a long list of best-selling mind-body-spirit authors, and she's passionate about reestablishing our connection with the earth. In that, she supports the work of the Transition Town Network in her hometown of Bedford, England. Lynn, I am so pleased to have you with you to have you with us today. Thanks, Miriam. I'm pleased to be here. You know, I rather glossed over it in my introduction, but you have the most extraordinary background. Uh, I'm not. I'm not surprised that your book is so rich and deep. What can well. Culture- I, I was just going to say, extraordinary backgrounds happen when you get old. <laughs> you, know, it's like you, you, just you just have, have to live long enough. Yeah, you just have to live long enough and things happen. Yeah. So, And what was your question? Well, I wanted to know why you wrote the book. Ah, well, um, the reasons why I started the book are not the reasons why, uh, how it ended up and why I'm passionate about it now. Actually, the original reasons why I was thinking, uh, why I decided to write the book was that I had been... Uh, coaching, it seemed like my niche was holistic practitioners. I had uh, so many holistic practitioners in my, in my coaching practice who all hated to do marketing. And I, I, that was curious to me, how they, why they hated to do marketing, uh, what was it about it. But then I realized that I, you know, having come from an artistic background, uh, I had lived years as a starving artist, you know, and I was a free, freelance musician. I had a small record label and uh, studio and just, you know, had done the marketing for us for years, dealing with distributors and uh, retail shops and events organizers and blah, 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 um, and magazines and whatnot. And I'd done the marketing for years and um, never quite understood it on a bigger scale. Then when I was a coach, I realized that I also started to hate marketing because I I was involved in the in business networks where there was an awful lot of stress put on it. There was, there was, um, I, I noticed that I was actually getting stressed out with all the 60 second pitches in the business networks and everything. And I couldn't figure out what was going on, but I had a feeling it had something to do with the holistic practitioners. So, you know, the, the thing that I latched on to very early was that there was, there was a lot of fear in marketing. And, and I could tell that this is what was going against the grain with the holistic practitioners. So, my original idea for the book was that this would be something to show um, people who hated marketing why they hated it, to take a good look at all of the, under, the unconscious things that were going on and why they hated it, and to offer uh, solutions for, um, uh, to, to, to embrace it because they were going out of business. <laughs> you know, and I, didn't, yeah. and I, belie- I believed in their businesses, and I didn't want them to go out of business. That is not that. While that intention is in the book, in its seminal aspect of it, it is not what the book ended up being, and it's really not what the book is about. Because as I started researching it, 
um, I got into really looking at the whole history of marketing, um, how it paralleled uh, the rise of mass production and technology, how it has impacted our economy, our health, our, envir our environment, and it became a, a, a monster uh, that I was like, just so, oh my God, this is this is a really huge issue, and and I. And I felt very small in the face of this big, big issue. And I said, how am I supposed to come up with solutions and blah, 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 you know, to, for, to heal the world and all this stuff? And finally, I said, you know what? I'm not. I'm not supposed to come up with the solutions. I'm supposed to ask the right questions. Mm -hmm. and, and the book starts out. The first line of the book is, this is a book of questions, not a manual of answers. Because I can't save the world. We people have made this mess. We people have done this to ourselves. We people collectively, collaboratively, compassionately have to come and look at these issues in a holistic way and, and really understand that marketing... The book opens with the question, is marketing making us ill? And I think after 414 pages of my book, you come away with the answer to the question that, yes, it is. And, uh, yes, we have the ability to fix this. And not only do we have the ability to fix this, we have the responsibility to fix this. Well, you know, the, 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 the passion in your voice, I think, explains how this seemingly modest idea grew into over 400 pages. It, it's almost like a core dump of your entire history and interaction with the marketing world and with uh, the business world. Partially, um, partially. <laughs> but I also spent two years researching it, Miriam. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not, uh, I didn't want just a passion dump, uh, so to speak. Uh, great term. I'll keep. I'll borrow that. Do you mind? Uh, but it's. It. I. I didn't want it just to be that. I remember sitting down and I'm saying, I don't want this just to be me and my experience. I want this to be about the actual issues. And I would sit down and I would start saying, I wonder what this is. Like, like I got an idea in my head. I wonder what if there is a relationship between the rise of lung cancer and the introduction of mass production of cigarettes. I wonder if there's a relationship between that and certain marketing campaigns. And you know what I found out? Yes. <laughs> there were correlations, exact correlations, because, for instance, lung cancer takes 30 years to manifest uh, from, from somebody becoming, let's say they start becoming a habitual smoker. It takes 30 years for it to manifest. And I saw clearly... Um, the the correlation of different periods of time where cancer appeared in certain portions of the population, mainly women, I have to say, mm -hmm. having to do with paralleling with certain key marketing campaigns that were targeted specifically at certain groups. I, I, there's also, you know, the, I look at fast food, I look at the car industry, I look at a lot of different things. And I keep saying in the book, I'm not trying to take down you know, any one industry, what I'm trying to get us to look at is the holistic impact of what's going on. We think companies are making a profit, but that's only if we're looking at our companies as isolated entities outside the ecosystem of who we are. When we look at our society as an ecosystem, a whole ecosystem, meaning an economic system and an ecological system, Profits uh, from, you know, a lot of the big businesses that we have are not actually 
making our society wealthy. They're actually costing our society money and lives uh, and, and also the environment. And so this, to me, was important to show people how marketing actually is compelling us to over the past century to buy things that we didn't actually ever have a need for before and not only buy them, but buy them at regular intervals through certain things that I talk about in the book. Uh, planned in the obsolescence. Ch- yeah. uh, planned obsolescence and things like that, that compel us to buy more than, than we actually need. And also using manipulating different emotions like fear, uh, feelings of sexual inadequacy, uh, sexual identi- identity, and also using different distracting techniques and, and deceptive, out-and-out deceptive techniques. So mm-hmm. the book then became this, this, this almost historic treatise, or at least the first part of the book is, on how we got where we are. And then I dissect what are the elements that I see, and I call them the seven deadly sins, what are the elements I see that are creating these imbalances and then of course i have to you know introduce the seven graces and i actually didn't think of them they they appeared to me in a when i was trying to uh prepare not trying when i was preparing for a talk i was going to give a couple of years ago on the subject of spiritual marketing for lack of a better word and i said you know what i don't have a paradigm i don't have a paradigm i don't actually know what i want to say and i literally sat down just kind of meditated on it and bang uh, number seven, great number, love the number, and these seven graces appeared, and then immediately I saw what the what the sins were, and suddenly the book hadn't been written yet, but I knew what it was about. Then it began a you know a, a year and a half more process of researching it. I mean, there's 20 pages of references in the book for heaven's sake. Mm-hmm. So this isn't this is not just my life gurgle, <laughs> you know. But I <laughs> I didn't want it to be that. Um, but I do draw upon a lot of my background, as you mentioned in the beginning, um, not just about being in the music industry, but I, I also draw upon some of the studies I've done on sans, uh, ancient Sanskrit uh, spiritual treatises that talk about society. They're not about you know, God or this or that. They're talking about society. Uh, they're talking about how society needs to behave as a, as a unit to, in order to be beneficial for everybody. And so I do draw upon that quite a bit. And I also go quite a bit into the origins of the words that we use. I look at how we've collapsed beliefs, how marketing is really not about the selling of products. About, it's about the selling of beliefs. Um, and also how we've confused capitalism with democracy because they're not the same thing. Um, nor is it our capitalism today necessarily what capitalism was when it was created. And certainly marketing uh, has played a hand in our adopting certain beliefs that are really making our society ill, economically bereft and making our society physically ill. In addition to the seven graces and the seven deadly sins of marketing, you also have the seven key relationships. That's right. Let's start with the seven key relationships. What are they and how do they affect the way we do business? Okay. Well, I don't know if I can remember them in order, but they they are relationship with self, relationship with source, and I mean that in the most basic sense. You know, I'm Mm -hmm. not getting 
not bringing, again, I'm not bringing any particular theological view into the source is source. We all have a connection with source, even if we're just talking about food, you know, and air and water. Mm-hmm. Um, source is source. And, uh, so relationship with self, relationship with source, relationship with others, how we interact with others, relationship with uh, our businesses, relationship with um, our audience as business people, our relationship with money, big, big topic, and our relationship with, uh, with marketing itself because we all have a relationship with marketing. And I talk about the different kinds of relationships we have with marketing, whether it's aggressive, passive, or resistant. Mm-hmm. And, and those relationships impact us as consumers, of which we all are a member of the great, great uh, mass of consumers. Each one of us is a consumer. Um, and it also they also impact us as business people how we how we think about marketing impacts how we how we do it um, but consumers for instance if they're you know if they're resistant to marketing they may try to you know play the game of complaining a lot about it but they're not necessarily uh, dancing with it and they're but I think the majority of consumers out there are kind of passive have a passive relationship with marketing which means that they kind of absorb marketing trying to blank it out they become a little numb to it they become desensitized to it and they do not realize the impact it's having on them they hear things that they think are true that aren't true uh and i in the chapter on deception i talk a lot about the kind of really conscious manipulative use of language that makes us think things are true that aren't true they're just opposites of negatives and and we suck it in without realizing because it's just so ubiquitous it's everywhere it's surrounding us everywhere we have allowed marketing to be everywhere we've allowed it to be on the on the subway you know we would call the tube here in britain we've allowed it to be you know on the internet we've allowed it to be in our inboxes we've allowed we've allowed cold calling i have no idea why it's legal but we've allowed it we've allowed television broadcasts to be interrupted every a um, few minutes when I visited California in January, I couldn't believe how frequently American television was interrupted with, uh, with, with adverts. Mm-hmm. Um, we've allowed this to happen. We've allowed advertising to take over our, our world and our consciousness, and we think we're not being affected, but we are. We're taking it all in. Well, with, within the context of the, the holistic paradigm that you're talking about, the the this um, is the the sort of flip side of what you call the deadly sin of disconnection. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, the question? Yeah. No, I I don't want to get into disconnection just yet because we're okay. going to need to take a break. Okay. But just before the break, I, I wanted to to you know focus on the relationships that we yes. have with ourselves and yes. and others and and well, how indeed. we yeah and, and how we kind of of downplay them in because we accept that this is the way things are supposed to be indeed and and if we have a i think i think it always comes back to relationship with self and source i kind of think that those are the two real pivotal ones because all the other relationships will be dysfunctional if we don't have a good relationship with self and source for, uh, for instance, if we don't have a good relationship with self, uh, we will tend to be uh, competitive. We'll tend to be isolated. 
uh, and you know, and all the other things will, all the other deadly sins or whatever will come as a result of that. If we don't have a good relationship with self as a consumer, we'll be more susceptible to certain negative marketing messages. If we don't have a good relationship with self as a business person, we'll be disingenuous and possibly exploitive. If we don't have a good relationship with source. Um, Heck, you know, then we have given ourselves basically permission to rape the planet. Uh, you know, we give ourselves permission to extract more and waste more and do whatever the heck we want and dump it in some other country. Um, having a good relationship with source is imperative to ethical business. And it's also imperative to our, uh, our, our ability to not be affected negatively by marketing as consumers. Because if we had a great relationship with source, we would never accept certain, certain products into our lives. We wouldn't buy them. We wouldn't consider them. Um, and lots of other things. I, I mean, I give an example. I haven't owned a car for 12 years, and I hope to God I never, I never own a car. <laughs> um, I, I did when I lived in the States, and uh, if I think about the amount of pollution I must have contributed to uh, and just and the waste in the, in the fact that I had over a 40-year period, uh, period of time, I probably went through 10 cars that were trashed somewhere at some point in time. My goodness, you know, you have to think of the bigger impact. What are we creating from our consumption? It's not just about petrol fumes. It's about, you know, what, what happens to the car when it, as uh, Annie Leonard from Story of Stuff says, when it goes away. You know, what happens mm -hmm. when it, it doesn't go away? And, and this, is, this is really what I want people to start thinking about, the bigger impact of their consumption. Absolutely. Our, our, our consumption. Yeah. Okay, well, we're going to take a short break now, and then we'll be right back with our guest, Lynn Serafin, talking about her book, The Seven Graces of Marketing. Albert Einstein said, I believe in intuition and inspiration. Imagination is more important than knowledge, for knowledge is limited, whereas imagination embraces the entire world, stimulating progress, giving birth to evolution. New Consciousness Review is all about the media of inspiration and trusting your intuition. Join us at ncreview.com, your partner in conscious evolution. and you're listening to New Consciousness Review. Our guest is Lynn Serafin. We're discussing the seven graces of marketing. And now we're going to discuss the flip side, which is the seven deadly sins of marketing. Lynn, I like the way you drew parallels between the sins and the graces and how everything is interrelated. But anyway, sins are always such fun. What are the seven deadly sins of marketing? Yeah, and first I just want to say, in the book I talk about why I use the word sin. And uh, it, it's, it, interestingly enough, we usually equate it with like a religious meaning. But if you look at the, at the actual etymological origins of the word sin, it actually has to do with um, social ethical behavior. Nothing to do with religion, nothing to do with judgment, nothing to do 
with whatever. It's, it's actually a man-made concept having to do with ethics in society. And really, that is what I'm talking about here. So this is, it's not some cosmic thing. Uh, it, it is, I'm, I'm looking at ethics and social responsibility. So the seven deadly sins uh, in the book are, number one is disconnection, because that's the foundation of all the others. Uh, number two is, is persuasion which you see everywhere. <laughs> number, th- number three is invasion, which can only come if we already tell ourselves we can persuade, and we can't persuade unless we're already disconnected. So uh, disconnection, persuasion, invasion. Uh, the next one is distraction. Uh, the next one is deception, out and out deception. So you see they get deeper and darker mm-hmm. as we go along. And then the next one is scarcity, which is probably the chunkiest chapter in the book i think i almost couldn't stop myself writing i could have written a whole book on this one and then uh and then the last one is competition mm-hmm. so i'll repeat that i guess disconnection persuasion invasion d- distraction deception scarcity and competition so you're using these deadly sins in the context of of marketing of how traditional marketing manipulates us Yes, and I am also using it in terms of our mindsets. It's not just about marketing. I'm showing examples in it from life about, you know, what does competition actually do? Because I want to bring this down to a a ground level. This book is not just for people who do marketing. This is for consumers. This is for parents who want a better world for their kids or grandkids. I'm a grandmother. You know, I, I, I dedicated the book to my grandson. I want a better world for the future generations. So let's say, for instance, in the chapter on competition, one of the things I talk about, I I reflected on a competition I was in when I was a child in a spelling bee. I I won't go into the whole story because it's it's a long story. But it made such an impact on me. I was 10 when this happened. When When my peers tried to get me to compete against my best friend, now, we were already in the competition, so I was technically competing against her, but they tried to get me to emotionally compete against her and to be jealous of her success because she was actually, she actually got further along in, in the spelling bee than I did. And it was my first moral dilemma in life where I had to deal with um, the, the concept of jealousy, which is really, all jealousy is, is the desire to have something someone else has or... Um, or thinking that there can be only one. And what I, uh, what, and I actually prayed, because I was actually, I was in Catholic school when this happened, so I actually prayed. And what happened as a result of that was that I, I, was, I was graced, I will say I was graced with the lifting of this, uh, this, this feeling that this, the other students were trying to get me to, to really hate my best friend and be jealous of her. And it lifted. And I realized from that, uh, after that, the things that happened, if I hadn't gotten rid of, eliminated competition from my consciousness, I wouldn't have been there for her and she wouldn't have been there for me. And it, 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 it freed me from that consciousness. Now, having been a musician, uh, I later went into very competitive situations. They always drained me. They always uh, just wore me out. And you know, even though I have a very high integrity level, and I want, you know, I work with book uh, with authors, I market authors, and I want them to get to number one. 
the it's not to me it's not about competition it's about doing the best job i can it's got nothing to do with making other people less or or trying to be the one it it, I, it is such a destructive force competition it cuts uh, innovation it, it it limits innovation it limits um uh creativity when we're thinking about winning we're not thinking about new ideas winning and competition when there's only one it puts us into a fear place and that just limits all the innovation and creativity that we can come up with that's why this book i'm hoping will be a, a call to people to collaborate to find solutions this is and again and i you know i want to stress it again even though i mentioned certain industries in here they're actually the ones i would like to work with to change the world you know i, I talk about mcdonald's or the american tobacco company or whatever i don't want them to be the enemy i want them to be part of the solution you know you can't make you can't separate and disconnect us we are all inhabitants of the earth so if i were seeing them in this disconnected way which is the first deadly sin we would never come up with solutions connection is the only pathway back to uh, our own humanity and conversely disconnection is the seed of most of the ills of humanity not most all yeah if you when you really really examine it all the ills of humanity crime comes from feelings of disconnection you know uh, war comes from disconnection everything comes from disconnection our imbalances in the planet come from disconnection from the planet disconnection in all of those seven key relationships is the foundation for all of the ills of mankind now and i think more and more people are realizing that they are realizing it a lot i can see the signs around me that people are starting to get it um and you know we have the ability to change it i believe in humanity i really really do we have to be our own our own greatest resource you know so when you say that you you see it all around you i interviewed uh, charles eisenstein a few weeks ago who wrote a book called sacred economics mm-hmm. and he he was talking about one of the things that you mentioned earlier which is that you need to see the bigger picture of what we're consuming as consumers you need to see the environmental the social costs um and you need to factor them in when you make your your decisions so this this holistic paradigm is something that is just so important to take on board it's really interesting i i'm going to go buy that book now i <laughs> I wish I had I wish I had found out about it when I was writing my book. Uh, uh it sounds sounds absolutely fabulous. Uh, there is a part in my book where I I talk very much about the same thing. I said let's look at the actual costs. Uh and I can't remember what chapter it's in, but I do take people through a checklist of the product and it, it may be either in the chapter in scarcity or abundance. I can't I can't remember, but I believe it's in one of those chapters. um where i where i take them through all the considerations that they should look at before you even make a decision to make a product or sell a product what to speak of marketing a product um look at the bigger picture look at what is this going what is the impact this is going to create on society we have been brought up we 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 now are the inheritors of a myth that business success means continual growth and there is no paradigm in nature that unlimited continual unlimited growth is is natural it 
doesn't happen. There is no organism in nature that has unlimited growth. If you study trees, they have a, a built-in mechanism. I don't know if it's genetic or what, some kind of mechanism that keeps them from growing too high. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is that if they grow too high, they'll get an embolism, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's, it just key, it's to protect the organism, but also it's to protect the whole ecosystem. What are you going to do without the trees? Now it's the same thing with our businesses. If our businesses, if we think that we can create businesses that will grow and grow and grow and grow with unlimited profits, you're going to kill the whole ecosystem. It just makes sense. It's the same order in, in our social structures as it is in nature. There is no paradigm of absolute uh, unlimited growth anywhere. And, you know, we, are, we have come up in this myth of creating our business. If we're not increasing growth every year, then, you know, we're, not, we're failing. And as a result, we're creating imbalances. Um, big businesses are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Small businesses are going out of business. What happens is society has become too dependent upon too few. And as a result, we have no resilience. We have no local economies to keep keep us safe from an economic collapse. Uh, When in the past, we had small, close-knit communities. If somebody over there collapsed, it wouldn't kill the whole community. Really what the book is, and this kind of ties into my, my, uh, my belief in the transition network, really what the book is is a call to people to also look at coming back to creating more uh, local economies, local businesses, supporting local businesses, being much more mindful of where you get your food, where you get your clothes, where you, who you are supporting. And I'm not just talking about somebody who has a shop who buys clothes from Japan or China or whatever. I'm talking about people making industry locally. That's what's going to make us resilient again. That's what's going to get us closer to the earth again. Well, um, you, you weren't, uh, being in England, you may not have heard about uh, the, the movement here. We had a, a day where um, something like several hundred thousand people moved their money out of the big banks and into local credit unions. Yeah, are you talking, you're not talking about Occupy Wall Street thing, did you? Are you is this something else? No, it's no. something else. But oh, it's, great. It's, it's all part and parcel of the same impulse, mm-hmm. which is... Uh, seeing big business for what it is, which is extracting maximum profit today and giving no thought whatsoever to down the line, just kicking the can down the line for future generations or for other smaller companies or for the smaller investors who are left losing their savings and holding the can. Mm -hmm. Indeed, indeed. Well, and the other thing that I talk about in the book is credit. You know, we've become a, a world, uh, at least in the West, of, of being pretty much addicted to credit. Whole governments, you know, are just living on credit. And we're not living on credit. That's the point. And, you know, we, that's, that's pretty much seriously why we're having all these economic problems. Uh, over the past four years, I've, I've completely gotten rid of credit. I mean, I do have a mortgage, I have to admit. Uh, I'm trying to pay into it a lot, so I want to get out of that before I'm... Uh, too old to pay into it, but that's the only debt I have. I have no debts. I couldn't have said that four years ago. Mm-hmm. I do not own a credit card. I will not own a credit card. I, in me, in principle, I realize how 
uh, enslaved I was by the consciousness that you need a good credit rating, blah, blah, blah. And this is another fear technique. That, and it, it, we don't need a good credit rating if we don't spend beyond our means. And we don't need to spend beyond our means when we realize that more than half of what we're told we need to buy, we don't need. Yeah. And, but, but, we, but we have somehow come to believe that to maintain a certain standard of living, we need certain things. Well, that goes back to our relationship with ourselves. We think Absolutely. that we need things in order to have the, the self-esteem, have the image that we feel we need. That's part of it. And also, if we don't have that, then if our relationship with, with marketing is passive... We hear the messages that marketing says, oh, you know, I, I gave the example. There's, a, there's a, an advert in Britain here with, uh, for a skin product for acne, and it just says the first word of the advert is imperfection, you know, really like that with exclamation point. And it's like, oh, my God, I've got a pimple. Oh, my God, I've, I've got to do something about that. Um, and and the, the, the whole thing that if we react passively to marketing all the time and told, yes, I need this, I need that, I need the other thing, I need, 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 need. Of course we're going to spend. Uh, so it, it, to take a, a not a proactive, but a, a co-creative relationship with marketing where we're actually looking and listening really carefully. What am I really being told here? Do I accept that? Is that part of my value system? Do I appreciate being told that I'm, you know, uh, inadequate and, and, and a failure or I'm going to die or I'm going to this or that and blah, blah, blah. Do I appreciate all this stuff? Do I really want to listen to this? Do do I really need that? What would I save if I didn't do this, this, and this, and this? How would my life change? For me, it changed totally. Miriam, my television blew up four years ago. I don't actually watch TV. I don't own a TV. I will see an occasional thing every now and then online. But I, for the most part, I don't, I'm not in touch with the television. It has changed my economic situation immensely. <laughs> I remember reading that story. It's true, though. It's true. I, I have, I ha and, and it, it changed it in a number of ways. First of all, I made a better use of my time, so mm -hmm. I was able to build my business, but also I wasn't spending, and also I wasn't anxious. Everybody else was anxious. People don't realize how much anxiety they are put in by the things they're hearing from the media. And I want to be clear that when I say marketing, I don't just mean advertising. I mean the nightly news. I mean politicians. Anything that's in the, pro in the uh, business of selling ideas is marketing. That's to, in my definition. Absolutely. It, 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 it impacts us. And all I, would, all I would request people to do is start being conscious of how it impacts you. If an advert makes you feel... Ugh, you know, or whatever. Ask yourself why. Are you in good relationship with yourself? Are you in good relationship with money? You know, do you have, in the book I talk about money, how, what have you inherited in terms of your beliefs with money? So many authors have written on this lately. I know I grew up in the baby boomer generation. My parents had the idea that money was hard to get, hard to keep, and in general, it was just hard. And, and so you had to become dependent upon the corporation because that was the only safe thing. I was told at a very young age, programmed at a very young age, to think that being an entrepreneur was extremely risky, extremely irresponsible, and it was much, much, much more responsible to go get a job for a big company. Mm -hmm. I was taught that. And I have a feeling an awful lot of people in my generation, I'm almost 57, I have a feeling a lot of people in my generation have been taught the same thing. 
think of how vulnerable and dependent that makes us, that we are told you cannot be innovative, you cannot be independent, you cannot be enterprising, do not start a business of your own. It's the worst thing in the world you can do. It even, I even had a, a sibling who uh, criticized me for it when I started my own business as recently as five years ago. So, you know, it's, it's amazing how much we inherit from our parents and their generations because they grew up in the Depression, so to them money was a very fear, fearful thing. They passed that fear on to us, and it's worth taking a step back and saying, do I really feel this way? Is this really my value system? Now, for me, I believe in local enterprise. I believe in independent em- enterprise. I believe in co Cooperative communities, co, uh, not codependent, co, uh, what's the word? Co-creative. <laughs> Co-creative and interdependent communities, interdependent communities where people support each other uh, and where you know your local baker and your whatever. Um, to me, that's humanity. That's who we really are. But and I it's think almost- we all want it. It's almost like uh, this is coming full circle. Um, yes, you know, they, yes. they, they say you can't, you can't uh, go home again. But yet the home that um, our generation knew of safe jobs and lifetime employment does not exist anymore. No, not at all, no. And it is forcing um, the young people today to rethink their lives and... Yes. And actually pushing a lot of 50-year-olders who have been kicked out of their corporations into entrepreneurship because they can't afford to retire. Yes. And I think that that's – I think that while it's uncomfortable when it first starts – because make no mistake, you know, I lost tens of thousands when I first started my business, uh, which does make you think, have I made the right decision? But I knew it was the right decision. Uh, And But I think it's a great thing in spite of the fact that there are some teething pains to go through. Mm-hmm. in making that shift, undoubtedly, and they're not small. Um, but I think societally, we are shifting back because this, I believe it's because finding, creating community, I believe community is actually our natural state. Um, and if you read any, one of my favorite authors is M. Scott Peck, and his, his book, The Different Drum, is such a beautiful uh, treatise on what community means. Um, and it also parallels with just our spiritual and emotional development. Uh, I, I believe community is our natural state. And we didn't have it. We didn't have it. We're coming back to it. And I think it's beautiful. You had a wonderful example uh, about the trees, the fruit trees in Sheffield. Yes, yes, Tell yes. Tell us about that. Uh, well, that's in the chapter called Abundance because in Sheffield, uh, which in the past used to have a, a, a very... A kind of a not very good reputation as a uh, coal, uh, steel, sorry, steel manufacturing town uh, for a long, long time. It is now known as the, the greenest, I think it was the greenest town in Europe or something. It has more trees per capita than anybody else in Europe or any other town in Europe, or maybe it's just the UK, but I think it's all of Europe. Sheffield, I, I was so impressed by this project. They have a project actually called Sheffield Abundance. So it's the Abundance Project. It is um, uh, it is kind of the same sentiment as the Transition Network. What they did, this beautiful, beautiful thing, all they did was start looking up and seeing that there were a lot of trees, fruit trees, growing around uh, all this, the town, or is it a city? It's a city, I think, um, where they were not, the fruit was not being harvested. You see apples and pears and damson was like these little plums. 
uh, and lots and lots and lots of different kinds of fruit. And they were just not being harvested. Some of them were on private land, you know, they, and the owners just let the fruit rot. Uh, others were on uh, public uh, roads. Others were, you know, maybe in woods or whatever. But they matched the trees and they started harvesting the fruit. And what they did then with the fruit was they distributed it. Uh, this is all volunteer, okay? So they then distributed the fruit to... Uh, uh, I don't know what you would, it would be the equivalent in, uh, it's like Head Start centers in the United mm-hmm. States to where with children, for children and parents, they would, they would give it to schools, they'd give it to charities, and they would distribute the fruit to all these charities so that people were getting free fruit and more nutrition. It's organic, it's fresh, it's local. There's so much to be said about nutrition that comes from local soil, you know, and uh, it, it, it's, it's just immense. So now, and the fruit that they couldn't um, utilize, they would, they would turn into jams and jellies and stuff, and they would use that to sell to fund the project. And uh, they would, and because they were permaculturists, I met uh, one of the co-founders of it, his name is uh, Stephen, um, because they're permaculturists and they understood that, in nature, some of the fruit needs to go into the ground, you know, and rot there. Uh, they would leave a certain amount of the fruit there. Now, if a person owned the tree, if it was on their property, they would harvest the fruit for them, and then that person would take their share. You want to know something? Average apple tree, if it's owned by a sole family, there's no way that family's going to go through all those apples. It's in most mature apple trees, they yield way, 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 way more fruit than a family can can use. So what a beautiful project, an example of the fact that there is wonderful opulence to be gotten right at our fingertips. Here in Bedford, we have the same kind of situation. We haven't started the Abundance Project yet, but I'm, I'm hoping that um, there's a woman in the city council uh, that I've been speaking to who they've actually already started mapping the trees. And it's a big project, it's a big commitment, but uh, next year, this is what I really want to do. I want to get, you know, even if there's a small group of us volunteering, because we do have a small core of us, to even just harvest a few and get the project going and build it. Uh, And the beauty of it is, it gets people looking at what we already have, realizing that the earth is giving us food, whether we take care of it or not. You know, it's, it's... it's there, and we don't have to. The example I give in the book is, you know, the irony is you'll see people driving over the apples on their way to the supermarket to buy fruit, you know, from and, Chile, and, right? From 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 Chile, from the and you know, and so, and we're talking about uh, there's the word food miles, which means how much oil have you used to transport this piece of fruit or whatever to you, and an awful lot of fruit, uh, like say, especially bananas, will come from tens of thousands of miles away if you live in the northern hemisphere um you know i this is what's happened i will not buy uh produce from from supermarkets anymore i i buy from a local farm uh yes i do have bananas but they get them uh trucked up not air shipped from spain which is not that far from us you know (laughs) Uh, but but uh but all of the other is british i buy local local food and it's, it's better for you, it's better for the economy, it's better just in general, and it's better for the environment because you're not pumping God knows how much uh, 
you know, ex- sure, exhaust sure. fumes into the atmosphere for transport. So the Abundance Project in Sheffield, I, I just, I, I wanted to write about them because I thought there was such a beautiful, simple, simple, beautiful project. And maybe some people will read this book and start an Abundance Project. Well, it's, it's a great illustration of what an empowered group can do. Uh, yes. It's yes. just terrific. Now, let, let's actually make a little bit of lip service to marketing. Okay. And um, I am one of that uh, legion of uh, people who finds marketing somewhat challenging. Uh, you had a really interesting suggestion in your book that you said uh, you talk about the stake and then that everything evolves from that. Tell us about that. Oh boy. Um, yeah, I, well, the stake is a term I actually learned when I was uh, studying uh, leadership. And it basically means the life purpose of something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and I, uh, so, like I said, the stake for my book is actually embedded in the subtitle. And it is the stake for the book is that we can heal humanity and the planet by changing the way we sell. Mm-hmm. So the stake is a statement you make that keeps you focused on the reason why you're doing something. And I believe that every business should have a stake and, and also any marketing campaign should have a stake. What is the reason? Why are you doing this? What's the real purpose? Not to make money. If it, and if there isn't, well, not that, you sh- not that we shouldn't make money, but if we don't have a, a stake in our business, then, then it doesn't have a direction. It's like a ship without a rudder. So you're kind uh, of saying to connect to a higher purpose. A higher purpose, indeed. And mm-hmm. if I didn't have a higher purpose for this book, I, I'd be very disappointed in myself. Right. Well, I understand that you have a, a telesummit based on the book scheduled. Uh, tell us what that's about. Well, it's coming up in on December 6th through 9th. I know we only have a few minutes, so I want to get this uh, really quickly. Uh, it's, uh, I've got to give the link first so people can check it out. It's if you go to the7gracesofmarketing.com, and that's the number seven, not the word seven, the7gracesofmarketing.com, and then there's a button on the page that says free telesummit. Click on that, and you will see I've got 24 top speakers there. I've got Joe Vitale from The Secret. I've got Eric Pearl from The Reconnection. I have Dan Hollings who is the marketing mind behind The Secret. Uh, I've got uh, uh, Greg Reed who is like the new Napoleon Hill. I've got 24 top speakers from around the world and it's absolutely free. Please come and join us uh, and, and it's in preparation for the launch for the book which is coming out on the 13th of December. I'll tell you more about the book and how to uh, you know, how to get, it's about 50 gifts that people are giving away when they buy the book on the 13th. Uh, it's uh-huh. available in paperback and in Kindle. And, but if they do go to the7gracesofmarketing.com, click the button that says Free Telesummit, register for it because it's going to be a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant event. I'm so excited. We're going to go through seven sessions comparing each of the seven deadly sins with seven graces mm-hmm. and i can't believe some of the people i have on the telesummit you just have to go check it out because it's, <laughs> it's going to be wonderful great and your personal website is lynnseraphin.com actually i don't use that so much uh, uh-huh. the one i the one i prefer is the seven graces of marketing.com and also spiritauthors.com authors as in people who buy books or write uh-huh. books spiritauthors.com that's where i do most of my blogging most of my info stuff and uh where my clients uh, come to come through there. There's also a contact form on both of those sites where you can get in touch with me. Terrific. 
Well, Lynn, this has been uh, a delight. I, we've, we've only we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of the and that's and that's the beautiful the that's yeah. the beauty of it. That's so I I really commend this to our listeners. Um, the Seven Graces of Marketing by Lynn Serafin, S E R A F I N. So again, Lynn, thank you so much for being with us today. It's a delight, Miriam, and uh, thank you not only for having me, but for obviously having read the book. I really, I really appreciate it. I really do. Well, it, it was my delight. I hope, um, I hope our readers, our listeners, will join us next week on New Consciousness Review. When my guest will be Jack Canfield, the author of the Chicken Soup for the Soul books, and we'll be talking about his new book, The Golden Motorcycle Gang. You'll find all our interviews on our website at ncreview.com, a magical place for curious minds. Before we conclude our show, I want to put out a call to the bookworms among you. Help! The books are winning and the piles are growing and we urgently need more reviewers. If you are an enthusiastic reader who writes well, we'd love for you to join our editorial review team. You should have an interest in one or more of the categories covered on our website, New Consciousness Review, and be able to write at least one review every three or four weeks. They don't have to be longer than one or two hundred well-crafted words. We'll hold your hand with the first few to help sharpen your skills. We only pay if it's a rush review, but you do get to keep all the books, CDs, and DVDs and get your profile and writing exposed to thousands of readers. This is a key role at NCR and a valuable service to the community. So if you're interested, please email us at reviews at ncreview.com. Thank you. Now we're going to wind up our show with the track of the week selected by Scott Johnson from among members of the Positive Music Association. Their music styles range from pop and rock to folk and jazz, but all have positive messages designed to uplift, heal, or enlighten. This week we're featuring a song by Chanda Rule called Until Tomorrow. Sometimes you coast, sometimes you try, some days you will, you can't deny. Sometimes you win and don't begin or hide between the fading lines. Who knows where we'll be or what the new dawn will bring. All I am is where I stand in the present I can. But I can't wait for tomorrow cause my soul is singing now i can fly over the rainbow spirit taught me how i can move in the mountains spread my love the whole world round but i can't wait for tomorrow can you see the signs of life's design inside this moment for us to find not yesterday or another hour we're in the sweet sweet by and by who knows where we'll be or what the new dawn will bring all i am is where i stand in the present i can but i can't wait for tomorrow cause my soul is singing now I 
That was the magnificent voice of Reverend Chanda Rule singing Until Tomorrow. Originally from Chicago, this gospel jazz vocalist poet is one of the PMA's growing group of musicians who are using music not only to entertain, but to make a positive difference in people's lives and in the world. To find out more about Chanda's music, go to chandarule.com. That's C-H-A-N-D-A-R-U-L-E dot com. And to discover more great music or to join the PMA, go to positivemusicassociation.com. If you enjoyed our show, visit our website, ncreview.com, a magical space full of inspiring media for personal and community transformation. I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.